Amen. Grab your Bible. We are this Sunday in the book of Titus, chapter 1. Titus, chapter 1, is New Testament, 1st, 2nd Timothy. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. We've been looking in the book of Titus for a few weeks now, several weeks to be uh, specific. We've been dealing with really what is a snapshot of how to do church. And uh, in just a short little letter, Paul writes to a guy named Titus on the island of Crete, and he gives him some very succinct wisdom on planning a church in a very hard place. Here's what I want to show you this morning on Easter Sunday. We've already made it through, oh, about halfway through the first chapter. But I want to reread the first few verses for you. Paul's introduction, his greeting to Titus. There are a few things in the greeting and in the first few verses that I intentionally skipped over. One of them we're going to look at this morning. Uh, a couple others we'll look at later on. This morning I want to show you one of those things that we missed. Some of you thought, I can't believe he didn't talk about that. Some of you thought, I'm glad he didn't talk about that. Some of you uh, were indifferent and just didn't even realize that I missed it. But go to Titus chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised, look when it was, long ages ago, literally before time began, before the clock of humanity ever started, God made a promise. And at the proper time, verse 3, he manifested his word, that's the gospel, and in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, Meaning that Paul now had this gospel, this word from God that came in a promise before time began. It fulfilled itself. It climaxed at the appropriate season that God said now. Paul says, I've been given that testimony. I've been entrusted with this gospel, this news, this word. It's like, it's like a treasure to me and I'm to pass it on. Now look at the next phrase here. With which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. According to the commandment of God, our Savior. Now, I'll confess to you that I didn't notice this the first two, three times reading this passage. I saw in a commentary that one of very, uh, just one out of ten commentators probably caught this. And it's the phrase, God, our Savior. Paul attributes this message, this promise of long ago that he has been entrusted today to share. Like a treasure. He he. He says that it comes from his Savior. Now, here's what I want you to notice. It does not come from his Savior, Jesus. Now, if we were to, be, uh, if we were to take a little survey and we were just to ask ten people, who is your Savior? There are Christians. They'd say, Jesus is my Savior. That's common, right? Paul says, not Jesus is my Savior. He says something different here. He says God. And often in Scripture, when the Bible refers to God in general, it is speaking of God the Father. God the Father, the first part of the Trinity. Not the Son, not the Holy Spirit. When it says just God, most of the time it is inferring God the Father. Now here's why that's interesting. Paul says, I attribute this, this testimony that I've been entrusted with to my Savior. But he, he chooses his language here very carefully. And he says, God our Savior. I think we have maybe this idea that, that God the Father is this big cosmic bully that is sitting on his throne in heaven, 
just waiting to pour out his wrath on all mankind. But Jesus comes to earth to appease God's wrath uh, in, in such a way that if it weren't for Jesus, we would look at the Father and say he's just all, all bad. He's just this, just this cosmic policeman that wants to come down on us. The, the personality, the character that we give God the Father oftentimes is that he is the one who wants to drop the gavel on us. And Jesus comes and says, no, 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 just wait a second. I'll do this so that you don't have to do this. And while that's true, we mess something up. It's the very character of God the Father himself. You see, because in doing that, we, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, put this personality on God the Father that says he is this wrathful God that would just as soon kill us and strike us dead than to save us. Paul says, no, God is our Savior. The Father is a Savior. The heart of the Father is to save His people. He sent Christ. Jesus was His idea. The cross was His idea. Now, let me, let me tell you how I think most of us think about history unfolding throughout eternity. I, I think most of us view eternal history kind of like a tennis match. A tennis match between God and Satan. That it's this two great opposing, equal and opposing forces, one against the other. And it starts off with uh, God creating the angelic realm and Satan comes back and he falls and he rebels and he says, I can be just like God. And he falls and he strikes back at God. And then God says, well, I'll, I'll create humans. And he smacks it back at Satan. And Satan says, well, I'll go down there and I'll corrupt those humans. And we got this great cosmic tennis match going. That's how we, we view history. So Satan smacks it back at God and says, I'll just corrupt Adam and Eve. And he says, well, I'll take them out of the garden. I'll set them up. I'll give them a conscience. And I'll, I'll, I'll show them how to rule the earth. And he says, that's all right. Uh, in that pre-flood stage, I'll corrupt them too. And God says, well, I'll just flood the earth. And Satan says, well, that's fine. Flood the earth. And God sets up a new system. He says, well, I'll set up a government for people. And we'll do it right this time. That's what we think. And Satan says, well, I'll corrupt people again. And I'll mess up the government. And God says, well, I'll, I'll choose a people for my own love. I'll choose Israel. And I'll choose Abraham, and I'll raise up a people to be a lighthouse, to be, to be the salt and light to the rest of the world. And Satan says, well, I'll just corrupt them. Give me his kids. And God bounces back. And we have this idea that Satan and God are just, throughout history, bouncing back and forth, swatting back at each other. God's diving just to save things. He's stretching out to save the world. When really that's not... That's not the case. It continues on if we... I'll nail him right to the cross. And we all think, whoa, what's God going to do now? But God sprints to the corners, sprints to the baseline, dives and just barely catches on the tip of his racket. Oh, we got the resurrection. We got the resurrection. And when they establish the church, God says, hey, take that. And Satan says, well, give me the church. I'll corrupt them too. I'll corrupt them too. I'll have them fighting over the color of the chairs. I'll have them, uh, I'll have them discrediting themselves in public. I'll have them being hypocrites in this world. Give me the church. Take that. Take that. Take that. And we see all eternal history as this great 
equal and opposing cosmic tennis match. But really, it's not like that. Can I tell you, it's not like that. That is not how it is. And and today, I just have one simple truth for you. That this whole thing we celebrate today, Easter, even Good Friday, Christmas, this whole thing, all these celebrations we have, they have always been God's plan. God is not a reactionary God. God is not a reactionary God. He is a sovereign king. Things happen according to his good pleasure and his good will. The decree of God, the decree of God, the eternal purpose of God is just that. It is eternal and it is all-encompassing and it is singular, meaning that it's not about God and Satan battling back and forth. That's not how it works. He is a sovereign God, and His plan will unfold in time and in space. Let me show you a few verses this morning. I've got a bunch of them for you, and I normally don't put verses up on the screen. But this morning I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you a little break so you don't have to uh, flip through your Bible. Go ahead and put um, Acts 2.22 up for us. I want to show you just a, just a sampling of New Testament verses. We could go Old Testament, but I'm not even going to go Old Testament this morning. I'm just going to give you a sampling of New Testament verses that back up this, this basic principle that I think all believers have to come to understand. That, listen, God is never surprised by anything. All things work out according to His good pleasure. God may not always be pleased, listen to me now, He may not always be pleased with how things happen here on this earth, within humanity, within sin. But can I tell you, He is never perplexed. Nothing ever catches God off guard. I mean, think about it. You think God's sitting up in heaven, oh my goodness, they crucified Him. I'm going to have to raise Him up. Put the church into place. Man, he's corrupting that. He got that pastor there. He, got, he broke up that marriage. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? That God's wringing his hands in heaven. Can I just show you a few passages that helps us to get, get this basic principle that God is through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Keep going. This man being delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Who delivered him? God the Savior delivered Jesus the Savior. You nailed to a cross by the hands of God this man and put him to death. But God raised him up again, amen, having loosed the pains of death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. God is in absolute, total control. Even when it comes to the cross and the resurrection. He was not caught off guard. Go on to our next passage here, Acts 4, 23 through 28. This is a passage, this is really a song of praise by the church. Peter and John have been testifying. They've been standing in a hard place. Jesus has died. He's been raised. I mean, Peter and John saw Christ crucified. And now they're in pretty much the same situation. They're trying to continue to live the message that Jesus gave them. And uh, they're being confronted by all the same men that killed Jesus. And so they're in a tough place. And they stand. They stand under that pressure. And when word gets back, to the church, when word gets back to the first believers 
uh, at Peter and Paul's time. This is what Acts 4.23 says. And being let go, they went to their own company, and that's Peter and John, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard it, this is, the, this is the first century church, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is with them. You see God's sovereignty? You see what the first century church thought about God? He was in control of it all. He was creator of it all. Go to the next page. Who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Keep going. For many in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Talking about the crucifixion, the death of Christ. Whom you anointed. God anointed Jesus for this task. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatsoever... Thy hand, that's God the Savior's hand, to do whatsoever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. God was not taken aback. He was not surprised. He was not perplexed. He was not reacting to what man on earth was doing. He knew exactly what would happen to his son. Let's go to the next one here. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Oh, look at this one in your Bible. It's a little longer. I want you to see it in your text. Galatians, Ephesians. The, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. Ephesians 1. We'll start in verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Again, we're talking about God the Savior here. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Christ, God is unfolding His own plan. For what reason? Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, we have a redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us when? In all wisdom and insight. Meaning, this was always God's plan. He made known to us the mystery of His will, that's His eternal will, according to His kind intention. Those were the intentions He had before the clock ever started ticking. Which He purposed, that's a, that's a word that connotates forethought, design, in Him, that's Jesus, with a view to a time suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. That's the crucifixion and resurrection. Things in heavens and on earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. When do you get an inheritance? When does someone decide to give you an inheritance? Ahead of time. An inheritance has to be set aside for you ahead of time. God had this thing planned out that he would save us. He would take care of us. He would provide a way for us. Let's go to the next one here. 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1 says, Be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Nor of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, Keep going. But according to his own purpose and grace, which he 
which was given us in Christ Jesus when? From all eternity. But is now revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Go to Matthew. Let's see what Jesus has to say. Jesus said this, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations. And He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left hand. Then shall the King say to them on His right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In the final judgment of things, when man stands before God and he separates the sheep and the goats, when there is a great divide, when the final judgment comes, Jesus says here that God will say to those sheep, take what I have planned to give you from the very foundations of this world. I didn't just think this thing up. I didn't just come up with this. I didn't just come up with this. Go to the next one here. John ten seventeen. Christ says that He is in charge of His own life. For this reason my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No man takes it from me. He thought that Jesus was at His disposal to do with as He pleased. Look what Jesus says. Jesus answered, You have no power at all against me, except it were given out from above, from God, our Savior. You can only do what God says you may do. My life is not at the disposal of humans. I will not go to the cross by the hand of man. They will deliver me, but I will go ordained by God. Let's go to the next. John 2. This is an interesting one. The Jews said to him, that's Jesus. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? These things, this is the context of when Jesus comes into the temple and he finds that the money changers are in there doing whatever they wanted in the temple of God. And Jesus tosses the tables. He pulls out everything they got and he, and he, he gets mad, right? He gets mad that in the house of God, all this other nonsense is going on. And they say this, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? That you can just kick us out of the temple doing what we're doing. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They said, Forty-six years this temple took to build, and will you build it back in three days? Go to the next slide. But he spoke of the temple of his body. Jesus in the temple says, Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it back up in three days. A prophecy of his own, of his own resurrection. You catch that? They thought he was talking about the physical temple. He was giving them insight to the fact that he would go to the cross and die. And in fact, not just that is according to God's plan, but in three days I'll be raised again. Easter, it was always God's plan. Look at the last verse on this. When he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered, go back one, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them about his body being the temple, and they believed the scripture and the word of Jesus had said it was of great encouragement to them. Last one here, Luke 22. Luke 22. This is at the Last Supper. It's a familiar verse. Likewise, he took also the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrays me, that's Judas, 
is with me on the table. So he knew what was to come. And truly the Son of Man is going. Going to the cross. Going to his death. As it has been determined. Not by Judas. But by the eternal decree of his Father. But woe unto that man who he has betrayed. Guys, I could go on and on. I've got more verses. Uh, We could go to Psalm 22. We could go to Isaiah 53. We could spend a lot of time in Romans 8. We could go through all the passages that allude to the sovereignty of God, that he chose us before the foundations of the world, that he he has marked out a people for his own desire, his own will. We could go to hundreds of passages. We've just looked at the New Testament. I didn't take you to any of the Old Testament. I didn't take you really to any of the Old Testament prophecies that said exactly what was going to happen before the beginning. My hope this morning is that, very simply, the sovereignty of God, His eternal decree, the unfolding of His eternal will in time and space, that that sovereignty of God, my hope is that it brings you comfort, encouragement, and order. You know, uh, one commentator wrote about Solomon's temple that Solomon knew from the first stone that was laid of the temple what it would look like when it was completely done. It was said of uh, Shakespeare when he wrote uh, the play Hamlet that before he ever put pen to paper, before there was ever an actor on the Globe Theater stage, before it ever started, Shakespeare knew the final act, the final scene of that whole play before he ever began. Preston always gets on to me for doing uh, Shakespeare illustrations. Let me give you a more modern one. Some of you are probably Lost fans, right? Any Lost fans? TV show? Uh, y'all are lying to me now. <laughs> Every one of you. Um, I'm not. I, I saw the first one, and then I missed the second one. I thought, I'll never catch up. It's too crazy. It's too crazy. The producers have lost. You know what? I don't know how many years it's been going on now. What, four, uh, four years? The producers of Lost knew the final scene of the final season of the final show from the very beginning. Can you believe that? And that's a confusing, twisting, turning Crazy stuff happening, going back in time, future. People are doing all kinds of crazy stuff. They're on an island. We don't know if they're dinosaurs. We don't know what's going on, right? With all that, those producers knew exactly from the very beginning, they knew the end. Isaiah says that God knows the end in the very beginning. And nothing, nothing will thwart his eternal decree. Nothing will thwart his eternal decree. It was always God's plan. Easter is essentially the climax of God's eternal, sovereign story. God's eternal, sovereign plan unfolding in time and space. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ is really the climax of his eternal story. Everything prior to leads up to this point. And at this point, everything prior to it is fulfilled and becomes logical and makes sense at this climactic point. And at this point, everything else that is to come has a foundation now for being. It is the climax, it is the apex of his eternal plan, and he did not leave it to chance. 
He did not leave it to chance. Let me show you one more verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, your faith and my faith, God's eternal decree, looking down the porthole of time and eternity, God saw a need for us to be redeemed and he sent an answer before day one ever began. Before the foundations of the world, God had an answer. He saw the end from the very beginning. Isn't that good news? Hey, listen. If God is not sovereign, check this out. If God is not sovereign, you might want to just stay home tomorrow morning with the covers up over your head. If this is a cosmic tennis match or ping pong match between God and Satan, and sometimes it looks like God's winning, and sometimes it looks like Satan's winning, if that is the case... If that is true, and God is not ultimately and supremely in control of all things, then you and I should stay home with our head under the covers in fear because this world is spinning out of control and there is no one at the helm. Be encouraged, church. God has never been surprised. Nothing has taken him off guard. Nothing. He is seated on his throne. He is attentive, but he is comfortable. He will not be shocked. He will not be perplexed. He will not wring his hands. And you can be assured of that. Easter was always his plan. Let's pray. Father God, you are good to us beyond anything we could imagine. To get a glimpse to get just a small glimpse of your sovereignty could bring us such great hope and comfort in a world that is awry, in a world, Father, in a world that is just a mess. It's very easy to think that maybe sometimes, Father, you're you're out of control. But you are who you say you are. And the proof of that is the resurrection. Thus, it is the climax of your sovereignty. In the resurrection, we find out that you are who you say you are. Your promises can be trusted. You are faithful beyond anything we can imagine. You are the king. You are the King. Lord, I pray that those here who know you would take great comfort in knowing that even in an evil world, even where sin reigns, you are never surprised. Father, when loved ones get sick, when children are ill, when parents come down with cancer, when grandparents die, when tragedy strikes, when life throws us one big question mark and nothing nothing good, bad and ugly in this world is out of your control Lord that's a hard word that's a hard word but I pray this morning is it a comforting word 
Might we rest in your sovereignty, God. Because you live, we can rest. In Jesus' name, who is our cornerstone. Amen.